words now from John. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. I made myself holy on their behalf, so that they also may be made holy in the truth. I'm not praying only for them, but also for those who believe in me because of their word. I pray they will be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, I pray that they also will be in us, so that the world will believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory that you have gave me so that they can be one just as we are one. I'm in them and you're in me so that they will be perfectly one. Then the world will know that you sent me and what you have loved, excuse me, in that you have loved them just as I have loved you have loved me. Let me put a plug in once more for the series we'll be launching into next month, Faith as Wesley, John Wesley Lived It. And I think you'll find by hearing the experiences that he went through, how his vital faith was shaped, and I think it'll be helpful for your faith journey as well. And we'll culminate that series with John Wesley coming himself, and if all works out, he'll be coming in on a horse out of Teeter as well on that last Sunday in September. When I think about this passage, I remember the experience I had in my first charge at Mason New Ross out in the country in Montgomery County. And in that situation, there were two brothers who had received a large farming operation that had been handed over by their father and mother. And that father had done much to do the best that he could to divide that as equally as possible, both the land and the equipment and all the assets they had in there. But apparently, somehow, it didn't seem equal to them. And so, feelings were hurt, things were said, and those two brothers, to my understanding to this day, still don't speak to each other. Unfortunately, I knew a lot about the situation because that father and one of those brothers was members of my congregation. I remember sitting down with that mother and father, offering to help anything I could do to help bring reconciliation. And they shared their grief that somehow they must have done something wrong as parents for this kind of hostility to grow between their sons. It was a sadness for them. It was a sadness for the church. And it was also a sadness for the whole community because it was one of those places where everybody knows everybody else's business. And I think about this story because I wonder, is this how God feels when he looks at how divided we are as churches, as Christians throughout the world? That we can't seem to find ways, we, we sometimes take our disagreements out in such public forums for all the world to see and churches divide over doctrinal issues often that seem so minor or over pastoral styles. We see it over and over again. In three of the congregations I was appointed to, I walked into conflicted situations. As a matter of fact, the, the church in New Albany was so conflicted that just two weeks before it was announced that I was coming, the choir was so upset and frustrated with the pastor, they got up right in the middle of his sermon and walked out. Yeah, it was that bad. So don't get any ideas, okay? Now, what I did find is that sometimes major conflict is a sign of great passion. And fortunately, it didn't take too long to turn those negative feelings. It took some healing. It 
was probably a good year and two years before we really got focused. But once we turned that passion into an external missionary outreach, great things began to happen. And I believe that can happen in the church as a whole. But there's no doubt that we're divided. Uh, Scott and Arthur Jones say in their book that the Pew Research Center in 2011 discerned that there were 41,000 different Christian organizations in the world. 41,000. Seems like a lot, but I guess when you stop and think about all now the independent churches that basically are a denomination of themselves, that it shouldn't surprise us. And when you think about the missionary movement, where every denomination seemed to have their own expression of outreach to other continents and South America, Asia, and Africa. And so disunity is really the norm for us. And unfortunately, it damages our witness to the world. I've often heard from those that consider themselves atheists that they're critical of how in the heck can we believe in any particular religion when you have so much disagreement. I came across one Christian website that made fun of I won't take time to read it all, but he basically points out that that Christianity has to be man-made. That's the only explanation for all these divisions, that that if there really was a God, he would somehow utilize the Bible and express it in such a way that people would be more together than they are apart. And so it does hurt our witness. And how important it is for us to think about this issue and consider how we respond to it and what we might do to make it a different reality. Now, it really shouldn't surprise us that we're like this. Really, if you've read your Bibles, haven't you found a little conflict in, in the Bible itself? We've already talked about some of that in this series. We've mentioned how very early on, just months after Jesus has resurrected and ascended, very quickly there was a dispute in the early church about the Jewish widows and the Greek widows, that the Jewish widows were being favored. And so they quickly had to develop a process to tell Stephen about Iconium. Stephen, that was our first Christian martyr. We've talked about that the difficulties that when Christianity began to grow so rapidly and reached out into the Gentile populations, it didn't seem to make sense anymore to follow the Jewish dietary laws and especially the act of circumcision. And so they had to pull the council together in Jerusalem and they came down with a ruling and a compromise to bring back some unity. But do you realize the only reason we have the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians because they were such a conflicted church. And in a sense, it's all, I'm almost grateful because we got so much good theology from Paul who worked through some of those issues and shared the unity that we're called to have. And then with the Nicene Creed that we read earlier, the Apostles' Creed were developed with major church councils who came together because there was a charismatic teacher who was taking Christianity slightly off course. Because of their teachings, they were diminishing the importance of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that there's so much conflict, because that's what human beings do, right? I mean, look at the political climate we're in right now. And the only thing that makes us different as Christians, just because we are baptized didn't make us all pure, we still have that sin we wrestle with in our lives. There's still things that divide us. But what should make us slightly different is that we choose, because the bond that Christ creates in us, to figure out a way to work together, to find a way to walk side by side, 
even though we may not fully agree, that should be our goal. Now, just to bring a little perspective to this, and you're probably aware of this, but if you're not, if you're new to the faith, you might want to know that at one time we had one church. As a matter of fact, from the time of Christ until 1054 A.D., there was one church, one expression. It was the Roman Catholic Church. And then in 1054, we had two churches. There was a dispute about the use of Christian imagery. There was a dispute about who had ultimate authority and where should be the central location, geographic location of Christianity. And so the Eastern Orthodox Church broke away and centered themselves in Constantinople. And so there were two churches for about another 500 years. And then Martin Luther in 1517 nailed unto the door of the church 95 theses. Especially important was the issue of indulgences that the Catholic Church at that time had fallen into the practice that if you made a donation that you could somehow have sin absolved or you could even have the sin of a loved one absolved that would get them out of purgatory. And Luther protested that. That's why we're called Protestants. And he said our central authority should be the Bible. And of course that was about the time when the Roman Empire was all disintegrating and very nations, very nation states were rising and so Latin as the primary language had broken apart and so the Bible began to be translated into many native languages. And then with the printing press that sped that process up, and pretty soon there were all kinds of new expressions of the Christian faith that came to be called denominations. Our particular expression of it, you might want to know, is that the King Henry VIII broke away from the Catholic Church to form the Church of England, and our founder, John Wesley, that you'll learn more about next month, created a movement, not to create another church, but to create a movement within that church. But eventually when that movement came to America, he had no choice but to ordain his circuit riders so that communion could be taken to the masses. So we're just two steps away from that one church, which is why many people who are Catholic or former Catholic often feel very comfortable in this denomination. So tell me, good question to ask. Which do you think is better? To have one church where the priesthood is telling everyone exactly how to think, they kept the Bible out of people's hands for fear that they might misinterpret it, or to deal with the complexity we have today? And there are times I wonder. There's times when you read all that stuff on the internet and sometimes you hear people asking some crazy questions Sometimes I wish there was one, but I have to admit, I'll take the freedom that we have and the struggles that we have that brings the Word of God into the hands of everybody over one church. And if someone challenges you on that question, also let them know that, you know, we've done a lot of work in the last couple centuries. The ecumenical movement has brought a lot of us together. That's why we're called United Methodists, right? We were just Methodists until 1968, and then the EUB Church, the Evangelical United Brethren Church, merged with us in 1968. They were a part of a merger themselves in 1946. The Evangelical Association became the Evangelical Church, 
they united with the United Brethren to form an EUB. And, and so that kind of process has been going on for some time. The ecumenical movement of merging large denominations has kind of stalled, mainly because they began to see there's not much value in just making larger and larger organizations. But you know, that ecumenical spirit is still very much alive. We now, most denominations recognize each other's baptisms. We recognize each other's communions. You remember the days when a Catholic couldn't date a Protestant and vice versa? Remember when there were separate Catholic cemeteries? We're way past that. And I think it's safe to say that we have far more in common than we have that is different. We don't worry about or claim that so-and-so is going to hell because they don't believe exactly the right things. We're long past that. So affirm that unity when someone challenges our faith. But obviously we still got more work to do, don't we? Let me give you just a few thoughts that might motivate you, might inspire you. When you find yourself in disagreement, how to work towards that greater unity. And, and the first thing I would point out is that our salvation is not based on believing a set, rigid doctrine. While truth is important, and yes, we should be seeking it all the time, it is not what determines whether we go to heaven. It doesn't determine who is saved. We are saved by what? Yes, thank you. Matter of fact, Ephesians says it so well. You are saved by God's grace because of your faith, which is understood as trust, not said of beliefs. This salvation is God's gifts. It's not something you possess. It's not something you did that you can be proud of. I remember when I was younger, I used to be really focused on that need to believe just a little bit of the right thing. I would challenge people whenever they disagree, just a, a little bit, because I was so knowledgeable. And then finally, God hit me over the head and said, you know, you're saved by grace, Jim. And how important it was to let that go and see that so much of that need to be right was insecurity. That I was putting and staking my future on knowing instead of loving. Jesus certainly shows us a different way. If we come back to our passage that we read earlier in John 17, I want to look at this for a couple reasons. One is to realize that if you read this whole Jesus prayer, which is the whole 17th chapter of John, notice how much he talks about unity. He talks about that far more than he talks about truth. Notice the part that's not underlined. I pray there will be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. And then in 23 it says, I'm in them and you are in me so that they will be made perfectly one. That whole chapter talks so much more about unity than it does about truth. When Jesus talks about truth, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's about his ways, his ways of loving, his ways of accepting people that society had forgotten. It's about relationship, not about a set number of words that say exactly the right thing. When you think about it, who did he argue with the most? He argued with the Pharisees, the experts of the law, who really were focused on doing everything and saying everything just the right way, and they got so much wrong. There's a passage from Luke that always comes to mind when I think about this issue. And, and the disciples had noticed there's a person that doesn't follow them. Somehow he picked up what Jesus was teaching, 
And he was out somehow healing people of demons in their lives. And they came to Jesus, you need to do something about this guy. And what does he say? Don't stop him, because whoever isn't against you is for you. Boy, I'd love to say that to a lot of Christians these days, you know? So many just seem to be so focused on thinking they have all the answers. And then the last reason I would hope would motivate you to really work at the Christian unity within our congregation or with your friends or even with those people you tend to argue with is to notice in this passage how he says that what the reason is? It's so the world may know. So that people would see that that while, yeah, we're just like everybody else, we are divided and we, we can be just as human, but because we're bonded in Christ, we choose to overcome that and find ways, work together, even with those we might disagree with. Every time we come together, like the crop walk, what a witness to the world it is. It declares that the unity Christ calls us to is more important. It, it's a reminder that there is a God who can bring people together. Let me close with this story. <clears throat> and let me tell you ahead of time, I got permission to tell this story, okay? But when we started our teeter worship early in the summer, I think it was the second week I was there, and, and we had tried to take in some measures because I noticed out at teeter that we've got these benches that people sit to, and then we have this big open space on the right, and then everybody's way out in the hinterlands with their lawn chairs. You know, I feel like I'm preaching to way out there. And we had all this open space, so I said, let's try a few things that might encourage them. Not make them, but encourage them to move forward. And, and one of those concerns was putting a fence up that borders the cemetery so that nobody worries about sitting on somebody's grave. And we bought ten lawn chairs to put right in that, that empty space we had, just as an encouragement. You can sit there, you want, you can still use your own lawn chair if you want, <clears throat> but, but it's there. <clears throat> Well, it just so happened that when we did that that first Sunday, we got the fence a little longer than we intended. And it happened to go out far enough that I made one particular gentleman really angry. And he came up and made it very clear how angry he was. Always love that right before worship, you know. It really, really puts you in that preaching mood. And, of course, you know, I was a little invested in this because we put a lot of thought in trying to make this a little better worship environment, and so I began to explain very rationally, this is why we do it, because I knew he would listen to reason, right? But he continued to be angry, and he discovered that I can be just as stubborn as he is, and so we started worship. I don't know how well I preached that day, I, my mind was a little divided, but when I got done, I felt God saying, Jerry, you got to go talk to him, and if nothing else, set up a meeting so we can talk about this more. And so I walked right back to that area where he was seated, further back than he wanted to be, because that fence was in the way. And as I did so, his son, who was sitting right next to him, said, Jerry, you need to know that he and his wife, who just passed away about a year and a half before, have always sat in this spot. Always sat in this spot. And then this morning, he, he shared a little bit more information with me. He said, you know, we were actually started going to, we just moved into Noblesville, and we were actually attending another church when someone invited us to this teeter worship, and we loved it so much. 
we change churches because of this place. And you know, my stubborn attitude changed just like that. And I said, John, we can work this out. We get this fence cut off here, and you can have this space. I see why it's important to you. And you know, I'm kind of glad we had that little spat. Because I discovered something about him that's made me a little bonded with him now. And I realized how sacred that worship is to him. And so Christ was present in that conflict. And I'd suggest to you that Christ can be present in all of our conflicts if we are reminded that Jesus Christ values love and unity more than he does truth. Truth is important. But love and unity is, I think, a higher priority than Jesus Christ, at least as I read the Jesus prayer in John 17. So I hope we capture that spirit here at Noblesville first. I hope that we show the world that we can work together. And I hope that we show this community we can work with other churches so that Christ can be proclaimed in a powerful way. Would you pray with me? Lord, we pray for any families that may be divided, especially where religion has been an excuse. We pray for our community as they look at all these different expressions of the faith. May we find ways to come together to shout out that you are Lord and Savior of this world. And may we reach out to those who may be very skeptical of the faith for whatever reason. Help us to listen and love and accept them and know that they have been created by God as well and you as well. This is our prayer in the name of Christ who is our Lord.